think um, I think we should uh, kick off. Uh, I'm Saul Esterman, I'm um, head of the um, Department of Management. I'm very pleased uh, to, to welcome John Roberts uh, from Stanford University, who's uh, visiting uh, uh, the department uh, this year, this academic year, um, and, and um, it's very kind of to give this uh, public lecture. Uh, as some of you will know, John's done an enormous amount of work on 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 management, uh, um, uh, an organisational design and performance. Uh, he's got a very important book in 2004, Oxford University Press book on the modern firm, for example. Um, and more recently, he's been doing, uh, along with some other people, some of them at LSE, uh, uh, work essentially on on management quality uh, and understanding. Measure the management policy across the management, and um, what he's going to do today is report on part of part of that work. I'm sure there's much more detail at the moment, but particularly the part uh, that concerns um, India. So, uh, with no more ado, I think I'd like to welcome uh, John. Uh, he'll, he'll talk for I'm quite sure it's sort of maybe 40, 45 minutes, something like that, maybe a little bit more, um, and then uh, we'll take. Uh, questions and we'll have a discussion after that. John? Fine. Please. Thank you very much, Saul. Um, can people hear me okay? I'm not sure if the microphone's working or not. But, uh, anyway, um, though we're sort of going to run this as I talk, then you talk. If you have clarifying questions along the way, if something confuses you, it's not that you disagree with it, but you're confused by it, please, please stick up your hand and, and let me know. And, and I probably won't ignore you. Um, okay, so this is my title slide. And uh, the talk is based on a paper that's available on Nick Bloom's website at Stanford. Uh, Nick is kind of the, though the authors are listed alphabetically, um, they are, uh, Nick is really the senior person on this, though not not in age, but in contribution. Um, but as you can see, there are three of us from Stanford, one from the uh, second-rate school across the bay, and, uh, and one from the World Bank. And we're a team working on, on this question. So um, business people are pretty convinced, especially managers, that management matters. And most uh, business scholars are convinced of that as well. Economists are not, at least ones who work in economics departments as opposed to management schools. Uh, those of us in management schools have a vested interest in believing that what we're doing is, is worthwhile. But economists typically have questioned this. Now, you can go all the way back into the 140 years ago and you find economists writing about management and its importance. And, uh, but really, there's very little in the current economics literature where management figures in. There's Bob Lucas's model of the, the uh, size structure of, of firms, the size distribution of firms, where there's something that managers have that differentiates them and better managers get to manage bigger companies in equilibrium. And Sherwin Rosen built on those ideas, but 
a lot of economists uh, really are kind of dubious. And part of it has been that it's very hard to figure out how you measure management, especially if you think of it in terms of the terms that we now more often apply to leadership. But uh, in recent years, uh, work that's been done initially here at the LSE and continues to be centered here at the LSE has been looking into ways of measuring management. And particularly, uh, Nick Bloom with his co-author John Van Rienen, who's head of the Center for Economic Performance here, have done surveys of firms, uh, double-blind surveys, so the interviewers don't know anything about the firm either, and so aren't biased, um, investigating particularly their target centering, their monitoring, and the way they give incentives. And this is, uh, they have 18 measures that were initially developed by McKinsey. And they have examined them all over the world. And they find huge differences within countries and significant differences across countries in what they call the quality of management. And they are sort of entitled to call it quality of management because their measures really do correlate very well with all kinds of measures of performance. Um, productivity per worker, um, Tobin's Q for publicly traded companies, profitability, all kinds of things. Uh, but this is correlations. And there are lots of correlations on a more micro-specialized level. For example, the work of my colleague Kath, uh, Catherine Shaw and Casey Mijowski, who've examined the productivity of every steel finishing line in, in North America and discovered that there's a very strong correlation between modern HR methods um, and productivity. But correlation isn't causality. Maybe good firms can afford to hire good managers. Or maybe it's uh, good firms have good technology and they look well managed as a result. Uh, so there's been, in recent couple of years, there's been a little bit of work in the development area with n not micro-enterprises, nano-enterprises. Little one and two person firms, in mostly in India but also in Mexico and whatnot, uh, teaching their uh, owners the very fundamentals of business, like it's a good idea not to intermix your accounts and the business accounts. And, uh, what are pro what's what's the credit and what's a debit and which goes by the window and which by the door and which is the window and which is the door uh, and those turn out to have some important impacts but uh, they're not really about significant sized firms and there's really been no work in big firms that would establish causation there's lots of knowledge through the management literature of good management matters in, in a correlation fashion, but no, as far as we know, nothing experimental. So one of the findings of Bloom Ran Renan is that rich countries have better management. I don't know, can you people read that in the back, the ones of you who are not, uh, not into your apples? Um, so at the top is the US, and the average US management score is about 3.4 on a scale from one to five. Um, and then Germany's next, Sweden, Japan, Canada, France. You can see there's a pretty strong correlation between GDP per capita 
and this quality of management. And you get down into the developing countries, Brazil, India, China, and lo and behold, Greece, uh, bring up the bottom of the pack. And there's a, these are really, they are statistically massively significant. Um, and what it turns out is that it's, um, it's as if the distribution of management quality were shifted from the poor countries to the rich countries. Poor countries have, so what we have here is US manufacturing um, and, uh, and Indian. And good, oops, this is, this, this is as weak as my chair that broke down on the way over. Um, Indian, there are some very well-managed Indian firms, no question about it. If you look at a, a typical Tata operation or uh, um, anything that Reliance Industries does or any of the, the multinationals operating <coughs> in India, they are very well-managed. There are a lot more relatively well-managed firms in the U.S. and correspondingly there are not many disastrously badly managed firms in the U.S. down below two, whereas there's a lot in India. So basically the difference is that India has this thick tail of really execrably managed firms. So, or at least that's what it appears. So the first question is, are we really seeing bad management? A lot of Chicago economists would tend to argue, well, what we're seeing is that firms, of course, are always perfectly profit maximizing. So if they choose not to do these things, it must be that in the Indian context, it isn't worthwhile. And some uh, extreme exponents of the um, contingency view in uh, org behavior would take approximately the same position. So is it really bad management or are we just observing uh, people making rational choices in a different environment than we're operating in normally? If it is bad management, why are they so badly managed? Okay. There are good, there are well-managed Indian firms. Why are they bad? And if they're so bad, how do they survive? What, why don't they go out of business? Why don't they get killed off by the competition? Can their management be improved? And if so, to what effect? So that's what we set out to do. Uh, and we set up an experiment. Um, we hired a consulting company through open bidding, um, an international uh, well-regarded consulting company, has about 60,000 employees in India alone. Uh, and we identified um, large weaving firms around Mumbai, average of 300 or so employees, none fewer than 100, none over about 600, because if you, they were too big, they were likely to be multinationals and well-run, and if they were too small, they really didn't face the management problems that you get once you get a couple hundred employees. Um, they average, the firms average about seven and a half million a year in turnover. Uh, they're all family-owned. 
uh, and uh, I'll, I'll describe them in more detail later. We divided them into uh, cru two crucial groups and a third group. There was a treatment group who got a lot of consulting help and a control group who only got a little bit of consulting help. Uh, we hadn't intended to give them any, uh, but it turned out they weren't gathering any of the data we needed, so the consultants spent a month uh, persuading them and teaching them how to gather the data and then gave them some recommendations based on that. And we, uh, we went back and did historical uh, data from before we showed up in 2008 so we go back six or seven months before our showing up then. And we've collected uh, performance data and data on management practices uh, for the last couple of years. Professor Van Rienen's about to hear this talk for the third time. <laughs> it's no wonder he came late. Um, the results. Total factor productivity went up about 11%. That's on the order of a couple of years of fat productivity growth in the economy. And for these firms, it's light years of, of change. Profits on average rose about a third of a million dollars per firm. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty about what that is in percentage terms. We figured this out just from you know, figuring out what their cost savings were and how much more they produced and what they sold it for. But these firms, like many Indian firms, um, well, we, we didn't have any good financial data on them. We asked for it and they laughed. They said, do you want the books we show to the bank? <laughs> or the books we show to the tax man? Or the real ones which are here? And we said, uh, we give up. Um, so we don't have good financial information, so I can't tell you how much this is in profitability. We have one publicly traded company, even though it's uh, dominated by a single shareholder who's the, the managing director. They're earning about 5% on sales. So 5% on sales puts uh, 7.5 million sales puts this on the order of 100% improvement in profit, which is not bad. Um, and quality problems decreased by about 60%. What's more, um, they started delegating and decentralizing more. Uh, they've had big increases in recent months in the communication and a lot more use of IT, though that last point uh, we got some money from somebody to measure the IT, but it's hardly surprising because the consultants pushed them to use IT. So then the question is, why were they so bad? And the basic answer is they just didn't know that they were bad and what they could do better. They had never, they had never heard of various practices, or if they'd heard of them, they misestimated their applicability and their profitability. Um, this is pretty amazing when you see what these practices are. Uh, they also have pretty weak top management. Top management comes only from the, the family. They have uh, no trust of their hired managers. 
And so, and what's more, they only get to draw on the family for top managers. So uh, if you don't have any good managers in the family, you don't have good management. Uh, and then competition has been ineffective in driving out badly managed firms, uh, both because of traditional entry barriers and because of managerial limits on expansion, that uh, the size of the family limits the size of the firm. Uh, what might be done? Improve the rule of law. We'll talk about why that would help. Uh, some basic management training would help. Uh, technology transfer from better managed firms would help. So let me show you some pictures. You've listened to me long enough. I can see your eyes clouding over. So these are big companies. Okay, These are substantial operations. These are four different plants. Um, and there are four stages in production of, of cotton uh, fabric. First of all, you wind the upper left, you wind yarn onto a, what's called a warp beam. And then you draw that out and mount it on a, a loom where the, and the, the warp beam provides the vertical threads. And then the, the loom puts horizontal threads in like this and it may have patterns put in it and things like that. But, uh, and then you do inspection and repair. This is a technology that fundamentally hasn't changed since the 1860s. The machines are, are run with different power, different speeds, but the technology is the same. Now these plants were a mess. This is a picture of garbage and spare parts and who knows what just stacked up outside the plant. India has the same health, safety and environmental laws as, as the UK or EU or US. They just aren't enforced. This is garbage inside a plant. This is flammable garbage inside a plant. Just junk all over chemicals in open containers and this guy about to step backwards into them. Can people see these pictures to see? Okay, good. Um, the, the work areas were a mess too. Um, this is a little harder to see, but let me come over and point at things. So this, these are the looms. This thing in here is a warp beam, an empty warp beam. It's just lying there in the middle of the plant to get in the way. This desk and chairs are in the middle of the aisle. This is a piece of testing equipment that was brought in to do something and then just left there. Uh, uh, I don't know if you can see them here, but there are tools all over the floor. The, work, the repairmen have been in there and worked on the looms and then just left the stuff there on the floor. This is worse than my office. This is a piece of machinery covered several inches deep in lint that's held in place by grease. That's a fire hazard at very minimum. This is inventory in one of the plants. Now, the inventory here is raw materials. It's, it's uh, uh, thread. And the thread comes in big bags. And this is leftover threads. 
and they're just lying there on the floor. They are uh, unsorted, they are unlabeled, and uh, what's more, they're unprotected from the damp. And the, you know, it's, it's damp around Mumbai. This stuff is rotted. They don't know what's there. Here it's a little more organized, it's stacked vertically. But there's not the slightest chance of ever, if, even if that guy there who's supposed to know what, what's in the storeroom knows, there's no way he's going to get anything out of the bottom there. So there's large amounts of inventory that's just going to waste. Uh, this is inventory that's just randomly thrown together and damaged and uh, just lying there. These are spare parts. They're lying there in the sun and the rain, unsorted, unprotected. Uh, this is the, another spare parts room and a storeroom. The sad thing is these firms appear typical. If you do the Bloom Van Rienen survey on our Indian firms, that's the top distribution, the mean is 2.6. The second distribution is all Indian textile firms in the Bloom Van Rienen sample, mean 2.6. This is all of Indian manufacturing as a whole, mean 2.7. And this is Brazilian and Chinese manufacturing at the bottom, mean just under 2.7. So these, these firms are disastrous, but they are not um, unrepresentative. So here's the agenda for the rest of the, the talk. Talk a bit about management practices before and after. Talk about the effects on performance and on decentralization communication in IT. And then talk about the big question, why, why was, were things like this? And I think I'll run quickly through the, the, uh, the first three items. Um, and just, uh, so here's the experimental design. Uh, Tarapur is a, a village outside of, of uh, Mumbai. There were six, it's a concentration of the industry. There are 66 firms there in our size range. We contacted them and offered them free consulting by Accenture, paid for by Stanford and the World Bank. We wanted to pay for it so that we could call the, the, the shots. We thought if they were paying, they might want to spend the, the consultant's time on marketing and things that weren't, would spoil our, our study. 17 firms accepted. About half expressed some interest, but then weren't willing to commit the time that we insisted they put in. Those 17 firms have 28 plants, and we assigned them to four groups. We did a first treatment wave where we were giving them the full consulting, uh, and it was manpower limitations that led us to do them in waves. We did a second treatment wave. Uh, we did a control wave, and then there were eight plants where we didn't collect performance data and we didn't send in the consultants with any consulting help, but we did con collect data on their management practices to see to what extent there was spillover within the firm from one plant to another. Uh, treatment control both got a month of diet, what consultants call diagnostics, looking at what's going on, followed by um, 
and then followed by a recommendations as to how to get better. Treatment plants got four months of help with getting better, uh, average of two, two and a half days of consultant time a week. And they collect performance and uh, management practice data weekly. We actually have performance data on a daily basis, but it's, uh, it, there's, it just puts too much noise in things, so we do it on a weekly basis. Um, but, but basically, we have no man we have no measurement error on the on the these variables because the people are actually there recording what's going on. Um, so I mentioned this. The intervention involved uh, a list of thirty eight management practices that Accenture developed, and they're they're very um, they're focused mostly on operations, quality control, and inventory, to a lesser extent on planning, HR, and coordinating sales and orders with, with, uh, with uh, operations. Um, there are some, they're very simple things. The first question is, do you do preventative maintenance on your machines, or do you just wait for them to break down? Okay. So do you change the oil in your car, or do you wait for the engine to fall out on the road? Well, many of them did preventative maintenance, but it was a yes-no answer. The next question was, do you do it to the manufacturer's recommended uh, standards? Well, many fewer did that. Um, is downtime recorded on your machines? Do you know why the machines break down? Do you analyze that information to prevent it from happening again? And you could answer yes to the first and yes to the second and no to the third and you'd be very typical. Inventory. Do you record the purchases and use of inventory? Uh, do you take, do you monitor stocks more frequently than yearly? Do you take them weekly? So here's a graph of the adoption. So in the middle of the screen is the uh, end of the diagnostic phase when we give them the recommendations. There are three lines here. The bottom red one is the off-site plants, the ones that didn't get any management and consulting help. The second line, which starts out higher and rises, but more than the bottom and less than the top, those are the control firms. They're actually better at the start because by far the best managed firm in our sample happens to be one of the control firms. There's a guy who had actually gone out and studied Japanese lean manufacturing and implemented it in his company, and so he pulls the average up significantly. Um, the average was about a 2.6 on these, this score. Um, well, no, it's 0.26 of, of the 38 practices, which the average. Uh, he's, he came in at about 0.5 or 6, and that pulled up the, the average. What you see is that the top line, the treatment of plants, very quickly adopt a fair number of practices and then continue for a while. 
Now we don't know what will happen when the consultants go away next month, but we're going back in a year to see what's happened. Uh, the control firms did implement some non-trivial changes, uh, but they weren't nearly as successful in implementing them as the ones that got help. And the off-site firms, after some lag, started introducing the changes too. Largely, we presume, from the, the managing directors uh, telling the plant managers in the off-site plants about what's going on, go talk to, to uh, Suresh over in uh, the other plant. Beforehand, 20% of the people in the staff were working in repair. So 20% of the staff, 20% of their labor costs are for repairing defective uh, fabric. And they were, even after that, they had to scrap 5% of it. But anything that needed repairing was marked down from quality A to quality B to quality C, and you got much lower prices for B and C than for A. So improving quality made a big difference. Quality record keeping, this is a journal that they, one of the companies kept uh, about quality problems, but the only reason they kept it was in case a customer came back complaining about quality and wanting a rebate, they'd have some record of what actually happened. They never used this data in any way in managing the company. Uh, they now have it very much ordered, uh, it feeds into uh, computer systems, um, it's, it's totally different. And the quality data is analyzed at daily meetings of the plant manager and his direct reports. Uh, this never happened before. And here's one of the big pictures. There's, <coughs> there's uh, six lines here, but the fat ones are the, the interesting ones. This is an index of quality defects weighted by the <laughs> seriousness of the defect. And they're normalized to be this, the black line is the treatment plants, the red line is the control plants. And in the period before the start, before the, the diagnostic, they're both at the end of the diagnostic, they're normalized to be the same. And okay, so 100 is where they both start. And then the quality problems in the treatment plants fall from 100 to down around 20, somewhere in there. And there's basically no change in the control plants. So a huge, that suggests a huge increase in quality that is attributable to the, the intervention. And we uh, I'm going to just skip over the econometrics, but you, this is uh, uh, estimates of the, of the uh, impact of the management practices on quality. You see three stars there. That means it's a good result. Uh, inventory now is racked and labeled and protected, and they have these cards that uh, have yarn samples on them that they provide to the salespeople, so the salespeople can push to, to have order things, sell things that can be made with the existing inventory, rather than just rotting away. And here's the same sort of picture. Black line is the treatment effect, red line is the 
control plants normalized at the end of the, of the diagnostic period to be the same. And you can see that inventory falls substantially in the treatment plants from 100 to down under 80 <coughs> before it starts up. They're both of them are going up in the later periods there because of seasonal patterns in production and thus in inventory. By the way, the, the dotted lines represent um, 95th percentiles. So the 95% the confidence interval around this estimate is between the two dotted red lines. And you can see there, they barely overlap. Um, and more three stars. Uh, in production, they started doing, you know, all sorts of things that <coughs> that Japan started 40 years ago, and the U.S. took 20 years plus years to learn. And these guys are now learning. So things like 5x, or when something goes wrong with your machine. You put a tag on it so the repair people know to come around and do something about it and, and they're responsible if the tag's still there tomorrow they're in trouble. Uh, organizing the spares, supplies, doing proper maintenance, uh, posting performance of individual machines on a board where it's visible to everyone and that you can get the social pressure going if that works and then giving incentive pay to the weavers based on that and more three stars. It's not, as, it's, it's not nearly as, as dramatic a num the numbers, that's why we don't have the pictures, but same, we got more output. Um, one of the things that John and Nick and, uh, um, what's Adam's first name? Raphael. Raphael, who's now at HBS, he's a uh, recent LSE PhD have done a paper looking at management around the world and have found that developing country firms are typically very centralized with very little delegation. And it seems that a major reason for that is that the owners are terrified that if they give any power to the, the non-family member managers, they'll embezzle everything in sight. And uh, the uh, and that's a worry, you know, that could be a worry anywhere, but if, the, if it takes forever to get a law case through, as it does in India, and if your management systems are very poor, so it's hard to detect fraud, it's a much bigger, bigger worry. So if, you're a, if you've got better management systems, you ought to be able to detect theft more easily, therefore you can trust people because you can check up on them, then you want to see uh, more decentralization. And that's very important because one of the things we've found in this is that the firms don't grow on the basis of their productivity. They grow on the basis of having family members to run a new plant. So there's, a, there's an optimal size plant. All these plants are basically the same size, so we assume that's the right size. So if a firm gets bigger by adding plants, but you have to have brothers whom you can trust to do that. And so if you, run, if you look at the correlation between quality of management and size of the firm in our data, it's about 0.2.
If you look at the correlation between number of male adult family members and size of the firm, it's over 0.6. So being able to trust outsiders ought to allow the better managed firms to expand where they haven't been able to before. The, I mentioned, so here's uh, a plot of uh, decentralization and changes in management practices and the firms that have changed practices more have decentralized a lot more. Um, oh, that went wrong okay. There's also a significant increase in the use of computers, the number of people, not just the number of people <coughs> sitting at computers a day, but number of people using reports generated by computers, uh, data <coughs> and so on. There's a lot more communication between the managing director, who's typically in an office in Mumbai, and before the only person he spoke to was the plant manager. And now the uh, guy who's head of quality or the head of purchasing and head of manufacturing, those people are talking to the managing directors. And that's, that seems to be a significant change. Um, there's also more communication among those first level people and much more open discussion. Now, um, I won't get into this last point, but uh, it seems there's a, some cultural change going on here. And uh, that, that has some questions, raises some questions about just what it is we're estimating, whether we're estimating the impact of changing practices or the impact of the total intervention, including the, the change in, in, uh, in culture. So then, why weren't they doing this already? Well, we got, we built a uh, decision model, big, you know, branch here, branch there, question, yes, go this way, no, go this way. Um, we, we show that to business audiences, we don't show it to economists, they, they're just uh, mystified by the whole process. But you then ask them to use their knowledge, their observations, the results of their discussions to categorize in, in various pots why it was that a particular practice had not been adopted. And uh, initially only a little more than a quarter of the practices had been adopted across the firms. Of those, 40% of the 73%, 40, four sevenths of them were because of ignorance of the practice. They it, it, somehow no one had ever told them that doing preventative maintenance according to the manufacturer's specifications might be a profitable thing to do rather than just costly. Um, or no one had ever told them about uh, keeping track of inventories and things like that. Uh, or they had ne not tried paying performance pay to even to the weavers who they shift, many shifted to piece rate. Um, another th 30 out of the se three sevenths were because they'd heard of them but just didn't really think they applied or that they would work. So yeah, you know, it's, it's like the US auto industry. From the 1970s on, American automobile companies were sending 
engineers and managers to look at Japanese auto plants and uh, they didn't believe them. They didn't believe what they were seeing. Because in a Japanese auto plant there's no rework area. If it comes off the line it's ready to go. In a traditional Japanese American auto plant a quarter of the space is given over to rework. Uh, and the Americans just couldn't believe it. They believed somewhere hidden behind Mount Fuji was a giant rework area. Uh, it just wasn't there. They couldn't believe that you could do things that way and then they didn't believe that if you, the Japanese could do it that way the Americans could. Over time of course as the practices what, what happened is some of the easy obvious wins were adopted the managers and owners came to trust the consultants, implemented some more. The reasons for non-adoption shift from ignorance to miscalculation or the director just doesn't get around to it. These directors are working 72 hours a week, so there's lots of stuff that they can't get around to. Or the, the line managers don't have the incentives. They're supposed to hold daily meetings and it's a pain in the butt, so they don't. Um, why doesn't competition work? Well, at a Weaver wage of $5 a day, these companies are profitable. So they're not in danger of going bankrupt. The directors are working their butts off. They don't delegate for fear of embezzlement. And that limits growth. You can't, they just can't manage bigger companies than they're managing. And then there's a capital barrier to entry. These companies have about 13 million dollars on average capital stock, capital equipment. And so getting into the business requires that. And there's no guarantee that anybody coming in is going to be any better. <coughs> so firms in emerging economies often have bad management that limits their productivity. Uh, lack of knowledge is a key reason for this such knowledge can be transferred and applied and the results are big. And this is really important I think at a, at a very fundamental level, much more important than establishing to my economics colleagues that management matters. If you go back to the early, the, f the very first slide, should have put it in again, um, but you get to see all those great pictures again. GDP per capita and the quality of management are very closely correlated. And there's reason to believe there's causation there. Uh, that badly managed firms are unproductive and that aggregates up to the national level. If we're going to ever rescue India from poverty or <coughs> Brazil or the other emerging nations, we're going to have to get manufacturing productivity up. Everybody knows about the wonderful things that are happening in Bangalore and the, uh, in the IT and business process outsourcing industries and whatnot. But those employ at most a couple of million people in India. They leave, they leave 600 million still in the villages. Uh, and they leave, uh, of course, you know, another 400 million 
uh, working in, and living in the slums. China has pulled millions out of poverty by manufacturing. And there's no way that IT is ever going to be a big enough thing to pull India into the world of the developed economies. India is going to have to bring up its manufacturing and so doing something about the quality of Indian management is, could really have, I believe, a big impact on, on economic growth in India and, and around the world. And that, that, that makes it worthwhile to do. So um, what can we do? I, I said early on, um, would, would be helpful, obviously, if we could facilitate training for uh, senior managers and uh, top executives but not the kind of stuff that they're going to learn at the Indian business school. It's not a matter of learning, you know, the, the uh, latest insights into how to manage uh, breakthrough innovation or how to, uh, how to rob your clients blind or any of the other things that we teach. It's about very hands-on, simple stuff that uh, any, I think any of my colleagues, they, they, uh, they just assign it as something to read and, and uh, take the students to see a well-run plant and that's, the, that's as close as they would, would, our operations people would go to it. But it could have huge impact to have very simple educational stuff. What happens, you know, basically management's a technology and it diffuses slowly like other technologies. Knowing how to do something that in that sense. The kind of management I'm talking about here, knowing how to do something and what to do, is, a, is essentially a technology, a set of, of knowledge about something. Um, well, in the developed economies, that technology tends to, to uh, spread through the work of consultants and through uh, labor market mobility. GM and Ford finally learned how to produce reasonable cars by hiring people who'd worked for Toyota in their American plants and by listening to Booz Allen and people like that. Neither of those mechanisms seem to be working in India. The people who work in the great Indian companies are not tempted to come and work in these plants plant managers or plant foremen or whatever are not coming to these little from Reliance Industries to these companies. And the consulting business is, uh, there's lots and lots of Indian consultants but uh, the price is low and it reflects the quality. Um, now in fact the profits here are big enough that payback period of a couple of years for one of these firms to uh, hire Accenture, but that's something that hasn't been tried as yet. Um, the other thing is to improve the rule of law so you're not so frightened of your managers embezzling what you've, what you've earned. So that's the end of, of what I had to say. I thank you for your patience and your interest and I'm delighted to answer any questions that any of you have.
Yeah, hi. Um, my name is Dermot Bates. I, uh, I used to lead the emerging market practice of one of the major consulting firms. I might add, not that venture. Um, this is fascinating. Um, we, together with the Dr. Paul and myself, we did masses of work in the former Soviet Union 10, 12 years ago on exactly the same set of issues with exactly the same set of approaches. Mm -hmm. um, maybe several hundred. Has, I mean, to your knowledge, has anybody in the academic community actually looked over the course of the last five or six years as to the results of that work in the former Soviet Union and compared it to what you have here? Well, I, 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 wasn't even, I wasn't even yeah. aware of it. Yeah, I so you, I think you find it fascinating. Could you give me the reference? I think you're on Wednesday. On Wednesday, yeah. <laughs> on Wednesday. Okay. <coughs> but it is, um, it, it really is quite, quite staggering. Uh -huh. I mean, having looked at, um, if you will, the classic, the classic industries that were, that were spun out of textiles, etc. Precisely, precisely the same sets of problems. And just at the end of your lecture, I think you alluded to what, what is the fundamental problem. And that is if you look at these businesses in terms of human capital, it's absolutely impossible to tie in in free markets the most capable of the managers because they're bidden away. Uh, and without a, that an approach to management that enables those literally on the shop on the bottom, on the shop floor bottom up to improve and to grow their management skills mm -hmm. um, over time, the likelihood is that these businesses will simply either fade away. Um, the, and the other point I would make, the, the, the other thing that's always been in my mind on this is why haven't we seen much more consolidation in these sectors? Well, I guess that's got to do with inter-family politics. I, guess. I think it's inter-family politics. These firms, on average, have been in business for 20 years mm -hmm. plus. Yeah. And some of them are into the second and third generation of family management. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> I think the politics, unless it was through, mm -hmm. you know, like a, through a marriage, yeah. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it would happen. Um, many of the firms they interviewed back in 06. Um, and uh, the only data I've seen is for China. And the Chinese textile firms are as bad as the Indian textile firms and they aren't getting any better. On the other hand, the Chinese electrical and equipment and electronic companies are improving at a staggering rate. So um, I don't know Th that's that's everything I know about the subject. Um, I, 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 I mean, it's a great lot of work in progress. So uh, we thought we were doing this resurvey now for 2010, uh, back in 2006, and sort of also 2004. And uh, Chinese firms do appear to have improved over that period. Some real 
we have some work planned. Uh, I don't know how grand it will turn out to be, but to go look at, at some Chinese firms in detail, sort of the way we have here, not the same research design, but we have a, a at Stanford, a, a, one of the more unusual PhD students in the world. He uh, was the founder and chairman of, I think it's called Sea Travel. It's the largest travel agency in China, Sea Trip. And he got tired of being a businessman and decided he wanted to become a professor. He'd actually been a math whiz as an under as a as a child. At age 14, he'd been sent to Fudan University to to study mathematics. Uh, so he's he's in our program, and uh, he doesn't seem to need research funding. Uh, <laughs> we actually have him on a fellowship just so we won't differentiate against him. But um, and he's also planning to do do some experiments inside his company with HR policies. So uh, interesting things may happen. I'm fascinated by the research design that you employed here, which is really a massive uh, intervention. It's yeah. an experiment. Uh, hiring a consulting company to do consulting to a number of firms for a month or more and so on. So I'm wondering how much did this research project cost? You said Stanford paid for it. No, no. Um, it's been paid for by a number of sources. Um, so far, we've blown through about 1.3 million US, um, which is like you know close to a million pounds, um, and getting closer with every passing day. <laughs> uh, Stanford put in an initial third of a million, then Nick has put every penny that he's ever seen into it. I've gotten the business school to put in a couple of hundred thousand. Um, then uh, we've gotten money from the CGI and we've gotten money from the World Bank and money from Microsoft through Toulouse and uh, a, a little a dribble here and a dribble there. It's very expensive. That's why it's good to have billionaire grad students. <laughs> and the hope is uh, after such a research project is what to have a paper. Um, there is a paper. Uh, there, I would. There, uh, it's getting close to a book. But um, somehow the the. You know the data, s the the s the sample size is a little bothersome. You know, but on the other hand, we have, you know, if you think of it in the time series dimension, we've got huge amounts of data, and um, but it is, you know, it is one industry. Now, whether that justifies a book, I don't know, but it's there's there's going to be papers. Um, thank you very much. A very interesting discussion. Having, as a consultant and author, and having been in Eastern Europe, I mean, these problems you see here are the same as you see in Eastern Europe mm -hmm. and China. I mean, it's very interesting to see someone talking about whether management matters as a consultant. I'm absolutely convinced it, it does. A few years ago, I came across some data from Australia. As a consultant, agricultural consultant, had calculated 
the average return over a 20 year period of different, different agro business firms. The top companies had 11% return, whereas the, the average was only four. So this is really a big, significant difference. And the question, of course, is what causes some companies in the same environment to perform better over the longer term, better than others? And it's quite clear it's management, because everything else is either the same or it's within the, the grasp of, of management to do. And so I agree with you, it's management that's got to be improved uh, in, in India. It's like management is a, is a catalyst. I don't think it's a technology. It's something that you need to be there. Infantry control and so forth, I think it's a, a, a whatever, it is a technology. Management is a catalyst. It, it allows all these things to be implemented and generate uh, value. And the interesting thing is, where do we learn to be managers? Well, we learn here by looking at other people who are good. That's why all these numbers at the top are good, because they've been that graph. Because there are lots of good managers in GM and ICL around, and people learn. They learn by mistake. People encourage people to go manage. In third world countries, of course, there are very many. There are a few, there are a few consultants, they can't, a few can't afford it. And so I agree with you, we need to pass information to the people at the top so that they are aware of what models exist in their industry. But I'm equally concerned and I agree with my colleague Dermot, that we need to teach people at the lowest level what it is to be a basic manager. You know, those basic things that are the principles of a good manager. It so happens I've written a book about it, but that shouldn't. Uh, and, and I'd like to start a foundation on, on, on that, trying to spread to third world countries in, in a low cost program. Uh, perhaps as little as a hundred dollars a person who is trained in being a good manager. So you can take a marketing department and say, this will now be properly managed in a team. And when they've learned, they can go and sell their own, and, 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 uh, their, their own lessons elsewhere in the organization. I think this is the only way we can overcome, which I think you know, is a really tremendous deficit in management that the third world suffers from. And I agree with you, they, they aren't going to go very well unless we do something about that. Thank you. We are they. Yeah. Um, did, you, did you or your colleagues present these results to the Indian government? And if so, what was their reaction? Uh, we have not yet. Um, we did have... Uh, no, the answer is no. answer is I don't know. Um, the, uh, the one place that I point out is that Japan comes forth on this and Japan is a relatively collectivist culture so that's not an immediate thing and Brazil is a relatively individualistic culture so it's not a perfect correlation though, though certainly you you see a pattern here I mean the in the, there's kind of the Northern Europe 
America, Japan, and then Southern Europe, and then the developing countries, and then uh, Greece. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I really don't know. Um, but this is Van Rienen's numbers. So <laughs> I always had the Greek numbers, uh, you know, of course, for a couple of years ago. Okay, so I was laughing at us saying, oh, Greece is you know, much better managed than you think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> history, there, we should have been fine. You should have been shorting Greece. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, the, the, just to continue a bit with the question, though. Um, there's been a lot of there was a lot of discussion back in the 80s to th about the extent to which the superior Japanese manufacturing management uh, was a function that was only applicable to Japan and that it was something wrapped up in the Japanese culture and it turned out absolutely not to be uh, so that's at least one data point that suggests that it's too easy to make cultural arguments about, about uh, at least the parts of management that are technical as opposed, you know, I'm sure that the management style that works in, in Uzbekistan probably doesn't work so well in Uganda. Um, I'm quite willing to believe there are big uh, cultural uh, differences there, but on the kind of stuff we're doing here, I don't. I don't think there's my my guess is it's not a big deal. Oh, just the uh, time since the intervention. So the time since the intervention, we used the instrument for the the adoption of, of uh, management practices um, because the, the, the problem with the potential um, endogeneity is that maybe you know a firm that realizes it's got lousy quality will act on quality variables and, and so you get bias in the, the stuff. Um. I want to ask a question, and I've been hoping someone else would ask it. But I, I think, um, I, I think the, you know, your main answer to why this was going on was ignorance, very high proportion uh, ignorance. But in a way, that doesn't get it because ignorance is about failure of dissemination of knowledge, and, and um, I'm quite interested in, in 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 what you picked up on on why there are those failures. And in particular, you mentioned as well that in China, they're not in this sector as it happens, but in China. They have been more successful, presumably, in this dissemination. In recent years. In the last How? couple of years. How? Don't know. Um, <laughs> having worked in China for the last consulting company, the internet is fantastic. And that they, the Chinese decided the telecommunication network would be improved by having mobiles. So everyone could get into the internet. And everyone speaks English, so people are very characteristically. You know, Dying to improve, and they they think it up with in but my I, view. But I think, and then of course, in things like electronic firms, which I think you highlighted, is a place where there had been a big change. Uh, they the demand for those products would be increasing considerably. Whereas I guess in textiles, uh, the total demand was probably wasn't very increasing very much. No, probably not. Yeah. Um, part of it is though that these guys didn't know they were badly managed. 
It hadn't occurred to them. Nobody around them was doing anything any better. There's one guy uh, who has a good plant, but uh, they didn't pay much attention to him. Um, he actually, he's, uh, you know, they, they ride on the train from their offices in Delhi up to, to the, where the plants are. They presumably chat with each other. Uh, there's now, we've, in the last, um, yesterday I discovered that, that the uh, manager, that there's starting to be some leakage from these firms to other firms in the, the area who hadn't signed up. Um, so they're, they're talking about it, but when they were talking before, they were all doing the same things wrong. And if you're all doing the same thing, it's, you know, it's easy to stay ignorant. I think this, well, these guys aren't SMEs. They're, this, they're, they are in the, they would be in the top 5% of the size distribution of US firms. So they're big companies. But uh, what you raise is a very interesting point, is how these companies like Reliance and Wipro and Infosys that are, you know, in their first or second generation, managed to get so big. They clearly had to get over the problem of trusting non-family members. And in fact, it seems that at Reliance you can trust anybody but a family member. Um, and I don't know the answer to that question and it's one that I think is really f an important one to find out because um, it's not just India where this is a problem. The, 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 the need to, or the, the preference for relying on f family members uh, in management um, is something that's widespread around the world. And in many places I think it has the same limiting effect on growth that companies get moderately successful but they never transition to being real winners. And so f understanding how those those winners manage to get over that end, that barrier to growth would be a fascinating <coughs> thing to learn. Take a couple more questions. Um, yeah, you mentioned that the consultants are currently still on the site. Yeah. Um, and that you plan to go back in a year to do uh, to take measurements again. Yeah. What do you? What are your expectations um, for these measurements? Okay. So the, just to be clear, the manage the consultants are just there to encourage them now and to make sure that the the data is still flowing. They're not helping them anymore in that sense. Um, my guess is that there will be backsliding, and that there will be less backsliding in uh, that much of the backsliding will be around things that either have proven not to be as profitable as they thought initially, 
that are a pain in the butt for the plant manager. And there are several of the firms that have introduced performance pay for the plant managers and the next level down, and I expect there to be much less backsliding there and maybe some further implementation of, of recommendations that haven't been taken up yet. But I just, you know, I just gave you my economist credo. Okay, building on Saul's earlier point about ignorance and failure in dissemination of knowledge, so I was wondering whether uh, the type of supply uh, value chain that a firm is a part of make, makes a difference. Um, for example, those who produce, well, they're textile firms, textile factories, right? Those who uh, provide uh, fabrics for local government firms, uh, versus those who are part of a global production networks where uh, w uh, uh, that like global global buyers like Nike like Adidas or uh, you know they source from whether this makes a difference in terms of uh, their position in the knowledge network I very much believe it, it uh, very likely does um, some of these firms sell to export but mostly to Middle East to not and not to the United Arab Emirates part of the Middle East. Um, they're basically selling in the domestic market. Their upstream suppliers are companies like them and they're selling to uh, people making uh, shirts and, and upholstery and things like that for the Indian market. Um, we didn't know it but uh, there when we started, but there's a down in uh, South India there's several clusters of fabric manufacturers that are much better than these guys and uh, it's fine I mean, we, we get to help these guys a lot more than we would have been able to help the other the, the good ones but I suspect they may be the ones who are making the the uh, cloth that gets sold to suppliers to Nike. Um, you know, Nike, Nike of course outsources all of its production, but it keeps a pretty close eye on what's going on in the plants of its direct suppliers. So, yeah, I, I would believe that the supply chain would matter a lot, and I think probably that's uh, another reason why the, the Chinese electrical equipment and electronic industry is moving much faster than the textile industry because they're selling into global markets to demanding and sophisticated customers. Uh, Professor, you mentioned the ignorance as one of the reasons why uh, they may not have taken on uh, advanced management techniques. Did you also consider if the fact that all these firms were co-located uh, whether there was some form of a passive collusion almost whereby there was, it wasn't in their own incentive to try to compete too, too hard against some of their peers because they're all in the same area, they kind of might know each other, yeah. they don't want to uh, steal from the competitor and kind of get into a, uh, that uh, Yeah, we, we didn't, yeah, we didn't see anything either in our visits or in the reports from the, the consultants that that was an issue. Um, they don't really see themselves as, con they have different customers um, and 
uh, you know, I don't think any of these companies share a customer. Uh, and there, there's so many companies that these, these 17 in Tarapur, you know, they're 17 out of 66 there, and they're, you know, thousands around India. So I don't think that's likely what's going on. I think they may have all made each other feel good because they all seem to be. One of, one of the things that comes out of John's work is that um, manage that 80 percent of managers believe they are superior to the average manager. Um, and uh, these guys could all convince themselves that they were doing great. You know, they're they're making enough money to send their kids to school in the states, and they're they're uh, they've got a good life. They just didn't know that they could be sending them to Stanford. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to say just one question from the audience. I don't know. Um, I do know that there was work done on the Indian weaving industry at the start of the 20th century, at which time it was as bad relative to the British weaving industry as it is today, to the extent that there is a British weaving industry. Um, but my guess is that, yeah, they had to learn these things. and. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that was here was stuff that was uh, developed in Japan in the 60s. And, uh, you know, that wasn't done in, in uh, mass production plants. In, you know, even in the best managed American companies. They had to learn it. And before that, you know, before that it was, uh, uh, before the Japanese quality movement and and uh, Kanban and all that, there was uh, the M form of oper of organization, which you know developed in the U.S. in the period right after the First World War, but didn't spread to Europe until the 50s and 60s when McKinsey came over. I think it's interesting. You can correlate this with with GDP per capita. You can also correlate it with how long McKinsey's been in a given country. Uh, and since these are McKinsey measures that we're looking at. Uh, but yeah, and you know, scientific management became before that, and, and uh, there's been advances in management over the, you know, since management emerged in the, the 19th century. And uh, they've, they've had, you know, they've had to learn it. Uh, I think uh, we've gone on actually quite a long time. I think we should thank uh, John for this really uh, excellent uh, presentation. Um, it's made me think that perhaps more sort of holds bound with rationality idea than uh, the idea of. I think I'll do But no, it, it was really very useful and very interesting. So thank you very much.